Good evening, everybody. I've been practicing to say good evening because I don't want to be an idiot and say good morning. Because <laughs> I'm so used to saying good morning on Sunday morning. So, so I got one thing right. Um, but I'm excited. Thank you again for inviting me. And a lot's changed in two months. So we, uh, we have three now. So I have a, a five-year-old daughter, a three-year-old daughter, and now a three-week son. And uh, the best analogy I got going from two to three kids was like going from man to zone coverage. So if you're a football guy or a basketball guy, you kind of understand that concept of now it's not one-on-one. We kind of have to watch everything. But it's a, it's a reprogramming because I'm so used to buying everything pink and purple and dolls and flowery that uh, the first time I went to the store to buy something for his name is Judge. It's, I'm Ryan Justin Noble, so our son's name is Ryan Judge Noble. So we call him Judge. Um, and I was, I was grabbing pink and purple stuff and realized, what am I doing? It's a, it's a boy. I can't. <laughs> so, so y'all keep praying for me, please, because I'm still learning. All right. So um, we're going to be talking from Psalm 139 tonight. So if you can flip to Psalm 139. Um, and I'm going to pray real quick. And then we're just going to jump in the text. And we're going to kind of camp out in the Psalm by David. Um, so let's pray real quick. Father. Uh, just thank you so much for the honor and privilege of just being able to read your word, to study it, um, to talk about it, and ultimately to worship you, Lord. I pray, Father, that um, as we discuss this psalm tonight, you speak to everybody, including me, um, and you show us what you would want us to see out of your word. We love you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So I'm pretty sure nobody in this room likes to be stereotyped. Um, and if you do, you're probably the only person in the world that ever would want to be stereotyped. But uh, what a stereotype is, is when we put preconceived notions on individuals um, in order to group or classify them. Okay, so, so we'll put our own ideologies and our own notions of how we think somebody should behave, how they should act, how they should think. And then we take that individual, that group of people, and we put them in a box, and then we treat them based off our own preconceived idea of them. Um, now, none of us like to be stereotyped. The problem is most people in this room stereotype God, including me. We project our own ideologies on who we think God should be according to how we think. So we put God in this box and we say, okay, God, you need to behave like this. You need to, you need to act like this. You should respond to me like this. Because I've already made up in my mind these preconceived notions that I'm forcing onto you. And in Psalm 139, I think what we're seeing is David trying to take God out of this box. Um, in, in the history of Israel, you know, it's, it's a young nation and they're surrounded by polytheistic nations, meaning all these other nations around them worship multiple gods. And these other nations classify their gods usually based on territory or some type of speciality. So there's a god of the mountains. A God of the sea, a God of the air, you know, a God of fertility, a God of the land, a God of the cattle. It's, it's, and these gods are, are restricted to these territories or these special functions. And one of the struggles you see all throughout the Old Testament is the Israelites, the people of God, intermingling with all these other notions. And you see, uh, you see them starting to worship the other gods. And then what they do is they take the ideologies of those gods and they place them on Yahweh or the God of Israel. And so even though they know certain characteristics or attributes about God, 
there's this wrestling going on because they're continuously putting God in this box. And what David's trying to do in Psalm 139 is take God out of that box. The problem is when you take somebody out of a box, when you try to, to get rid of a stereotype of an individual, it causes you to wrestle internally. Because what I'm having to do now is, is balance my preconceived notion of that person and how I think they are versus who they really are. And so there's this internal struggle whenever we try to break stereotypes of individuals. Um, Psalm 139 is dealing all with God's attributes. So it's not who do I think God is, it's who God really is. And in it, you, you're seeing David flesh out what we call the omnis in theology. Uh, the omniscience of God, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence of God. And David starts out dealing with the omniscience of God. Verse 1, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately equated with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all, and you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. David's dealing right now. He's unpacking the omniscience of God. Omniscience means all-knowing. It means that God literally knows everything. And it's not restricted to everything that actually is. God knows everything that actually is, is, but he also knows all possibilities of things that aren't yet or things that didn't happen. God, so, so when we look at God's omniscience, it's that from eternity, God has always known everything and every possibility of everything, okay? Um, when you look at the omniscience of God, it's understanding that God cannot increase in his knowledge. He can't change, so he can't decrease in his knowledge. Nothing is hidden from God. He knows absolutely everything. It's, it's one reason why the scripture says um, in Luke, the things that happen and the dark shall come to light. It's because technically things don't happen in the dark because God already knows everything that's happening. Um, his knowledge, what blows my mind when you think about the omniscience of God, it extends though from God knows everything that is, he knows everything that could be, and therefore he knows everything that would be if the things that could be actually happened. And if you really think about that and the attributes of God, it'll start messing with your mind, right? It's like, because we can't fully understand this, this omniscient being who knows everything, and he, and he just doesn't know it all. He's also all wise, which means that everything that actually happens or could happen, God will always choose the wisest or the best route to accomplish his sovereign will, um, and it's mind-blowing. And what David is doing is describing the omniscience of God using what we call merisms. A merism, it's a it's a figure of speech that uses two contrasting points to describe everything in between. So what David does is he says in verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. In verse 3, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. <clears throat> you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know when I wake up and you know when I go to sleep. He's not talking about just those two actions. He's talking about everything in between the points where I wake up and then I go back to sleep. He knows everything in between. Uh, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. You know everything that I do when I go out my path, and then when I come back to go to sleep, you know. So what David is doing is he's describing that God knows all the intimate details of our day-to-day -day activities. 
everything that happens in the course of a day that you're involved in, God knows about it. To me, when I was studying this verse, it was, it was actually, for me, it was really convicting. Uh, because a lot of times in my life, I, I look at it like God only knows or is concerned about the big things in my life. Um, when I have big problems, when there's a big situation I face, when there's a big decision I need to make, that's when I need to go to God because that's when he's really concerned. Because God is too busy. He's doing all this other stuff. He's not concerned about my little stuff, stuff that I can take care of my own, right? Or things that I think are, are so small, why would I even bother God to pray about? But what David is saying is that God knows all of that, which blows my mind because it would change the way we relate to God if we really believe this. That I wouldn't try to fix the little problems on my own that I have. I would run to God for everything. Why? Because he knows everything. Um, it's the day-to-day activities that he knows, but David also then says in verse 4, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. So it's not just the activities that God knows, but God also knows my thoughts. And to take it deeper, God knows my thoughts before I know my thoughts, which again will blow your mind if you even try to think about it because he already knows what I'm thinking about. Um, what it points to is that God knows our motives. So it's, it's, it's one thing to see actions and to know what somebody's going to do. It's total, a total different ballgame to know someone's motives behind it. I was dealing with conflict resolution, Pastor Evans, Dr. Evans, um, he told me a few years ago, he said, never judge a person's motives or their intent because that's, that's dangerous grounds. You, you know, we, we assume people do things for certain reasons. He said, don't, don't do that. Only judge their actions. God is the only person who can truly judge motives because he knows our thoughts before we even know them. Um, he knows everything. And this is what's encompassing about his omniscience. Um, the interesting thing is, when you think about it, it should bring us comfort. It should bring me comfort. Many times in our lives, I think, we, we ask questions, or at least I have. I, I won't assume you guys have. I've asked myself, like, God, have you forgotten about me? Um, do, you, do you care what I'm going through? Do you even know what I'm going through? Um, it's why the, the old, it's an old praise team song. I don't know how old, but... Um, the song that says, I am not forgotten, I am not forgotten, I am not forgotten, God knows my name. Um, if you really think about those words, it's comforting, knowing that the things that I'm going through, the things you're going through, God knows about. Um, and it, even things that we might think is small, like, uh, you know, God's probably not concerned, like he knows and he cares about those things. The interesting thing is that the comfort that I think that should bring, it doesn't bring to David. Um, David says in verse 5, you have enclosed me behind and before you laid your hand upon me. David is speaking negatively here. He's saying, I feel like you're confining me, God, with this knowledge that you have of me. You're in front of me. You're behind me. You're on all sides. And the language of you uh, laid your hand upon me is the image of if I were to take my palm and to press it down on something. That's the image David is getting. He's saying, God, it's like your hand is pressing down on me. It's oppressing me. You've confined me to this box, and now you're pressing me in. It's when I was first learning how to play chess. Uh, does anyone play chess? Dominoes? Anyone play dominoes? Okay, bo- both of these examples works for both. When I was learning how to play both, uh, my dad taught me how to play chess. And to me, it was the most frustrating thing in the world because my dad was always like 20 steps ahead in his thinking of what I was trying to do. So... He, was, he would just murder me every time. And, and I was just like, gosh, you're always, you know, 
He knew the motives behind why I would try to sacrifice a pawn. So he would be four steps ahead of that. He, and, and no matter what I thought, I would think I knew what he was doing and, and I could never figure it out. That's kind of the, the feeling that David has right here. It's like every time I try to do something, God, you're always eight, ten steps forever ahead of me. And it's oppressing. It's restricting. It's like those movies where it's like a, the bad guy and the good guy and the good guy's always trying to play catch up because the guy's always five steps ahead. And you know how frustrating that is to think, you, to think you're about to get them, but they're already ahead of you. And David, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I can't get away from this, this knowledge of you and, and this hand that's pressing down on me. And it's, it's a dichotomy of God because it should bring comfort. But to David, it brings this fear and this, this, this gut-riching you know, turmoil to his, to his soul. And it's a dichotomy about how the same God with the same character can bring both upon you. It's... Um, the most intimate relationship I can think of is between me and my wife in terms of human terms. And my wife knows everything about me. So, so we have this intimate relationship to where um, she a lot of times knows what I'm thinking. You know, she knows why I do certain things. If I say something a certain way, she'll be like, okay, you said that because of this. Um, and there's, a, there's an aspect to that that's really comforting because most of us throughout the day we wear masks. When we go to work, you got to put on a certain mask to deal with certain individuals. We have to be politically correct all over the place. You have to choose your words carefully around certain individuals, right? And we go through life, you know, switching masks, uh, putting on fronts, sometimes properly, you know, sometimes improperly. But when you get home, when I get home, it's like my wife, Danny, she sees through that. So I'm able to come home and take all that off and be me. And there's a comfort in that where I can be me. The flip side is there's this terrifying aspect to that that she knows I'm me, and so I can't lie to her. I can't put on a front to her because she knows that's not how you feel. You know, I can't, oh, I'm okay. No, you're not. And so there's this, there's this aspect that's terrifying. It, there's an aspect of God that's terrifying because he knows what I think. You know how scary it would be to, to walk around and people know what you're thinking? It'd be, you see those, um, those like superhero questions, would you, would you want to be able to read people's minds? I would hate that. I would absolutely hate that. And there's this terrifying aspect that God knows what I'm actually thinking. He, those thoughts that bubble up inside of you and you're like, where did that come from? If you have kids, you know what. I've said stuff to my kids out of anger and I'm just like, where did that come from? I would never speak to someone like that. Um, God knows that. He, he knows when I get really mad and I'm thinking very sinful thoughts toward people, he knows that. He knows when I think I'm doing a good deed, but really it's, it's manipulation. It's really to benefit me. So, you know, he knows my motivation behind even things that I think I'm doing. And there's an aspect of that that's comforting and terrifying because we can't hide from this great God of knowledge. David only comes up with the conclusion that um, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't even attain it, which is why I said earlier, if you really try to sit around and think about the omniscience of God, it'll, it'll mess with your head. You'll go crazy because we can't comprehend this all-encompassing, this all-confining knowledge of someone who knows everything and knows everything comprehensively. So David's response here is, okay, it's confining, so what I'm going to try to do is run. And that's where we get. Now, the the issue is David runs from God's omniscience and runs right into his omnipresence, all right? So verse 7, he says, where can I go from your spirit where, or where can I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day, darkness and the light are alike to you. There's this confining, all-knowing knowledge of God. David tries to run. The problem is David is really saying, where can I even go to get away from you? Uh, and again, he uses merisms. He's picking the biggest, widest points he can think of, the highest point David can think of. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the deepest place I can even imagine, shield, the, the place of the dead, hell, your presence is there. If, if I try to go as far on the horizon as I can to the dawn, you're there. If I go out to the middle of the sea, you're there. That statement is really important if I go to the middle of the sea, if I dwell there, because in the uh, ancient Near East, the sea was this place where a lot of the culture, a lot of the nations, and even Israel viewed that God wasn't out there. It was this place where God doesn't go out to the sea. It's why it was so violent and turbulent. It's dark. It's chaotic. So God's not out there. It's interesting. That's why Jonah tries to run to the sea. Out of all the places Jonah thinks he can get away from God, he says, I'm going to pay get in this boat and go out into the middle of the ocean to get away from God. It's, it's why the disciples are always terrified when they're out in the lakes, in the seas. And then when God, when Jesus calms the storms, they're like, who is this that can even calm and command the ocean? It's because there's this view, this ideology, again, that they've projected on the God of Israel that says, okay, we understand, Yahweh, that you're the God of everything and you're the creator, but you probably don't go out in the sea, but David is saying, I'm going to fight through even that notion because you're even out there. Um, the omnipresence of God means that God is everywhere. He's all present. He's not restricted to material matter, time, and space. Now, this isn't pantheism, okay? So, so pantheism is a worldview that believes God is in everything, right? Um, it's, it's kind of think of, it's, it's, it's this like new age um, mother nature, spirituality. It's, it's saying God is in this desk and this desk is a part of God. That's pantheism. Omnipresence of God isn't like that. God, God isn't in the desk. God's in this room though. Uh, God's presence is in this room. And at the same time, God's presence is with the lonely person who's isolated in a jail cell somewhere around the world. God's with that individual. God's presence is everywhere. And what David is saying is that where can I go to even run from you? Where, where could I go to flee from this God who is everywhere? The, uh, in 1893, there's this famous poem that gets written. It's called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. And in this poem, he describes this, it's this chase by this hound pursuing this hare. Um, and Everything the hare is trying to do to get away doesn't work. This hound is relentless in pursuing him. And it's this analogy, it's this picture of God pursuing a sinner. And it's saying that God is this hound of heaven who out of grace and out of love and out of mercy relentlessly pursues this individual who wants nothing to do with him. This individual is making every excuse and trying to get away. And when he thinks he's away, God shows up and it's just this pursuit till finally at the end of this poem, this guy yields to God's love and his mercy. That's kind of what's going on here with David. He's saying, okay, your, your omniscience is overwhelming, so I'm going to try to run. I'm running, 
but I realize I can't get away from you because you were everywhere. And then there's a shift in David's thinking in this, in this psalm. Uh, verse 10, he says, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. In the first, uh, the, 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 the first block, the first paragraph of the psalm, David says God's hand is oppressive. It's pressing down on him. Now he's saying your hand is gently holding my hand and it's guiding me. You're, you're walking with me. You've laid hold of me here. It's like you're holding me as I'm going. So, so David now has changed from this idea that God is oppressing him. He tries to run, but he realized that God won't let him get away. Out of love, grace, and mercy, again, God is pursuing him. And now David's mindset is shifting and saying, okay, you're walking with me, Lord. Your hand is leading me. You're, you're holding me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, meaning the darkest situation I can get into, I'm okay because you know I'm there and you're there with me. And that should really bring us comfort because whatever set of circumstances that you think are desolate, with no hope, and where you view darkness, you can't see the, the, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, whatever that situation is, there's comfort in knowing that God's right there with you. Because to God, it's not dark. To God, it's not hopeless. To God, it's not um, a place where there's no, there, there, there's no hope or no answer, um, no joy. No, God says darkness and light are alike to me. I'm right there with you. No matter the worst situation you could find yourself in, I'm there with you. Which there's a quote that says, sometimes God lets you hit um, the rock at the bottom, or sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so you know that he's the rock that's at the bottom. So it's a, it's a very cool play on words, but it's the idea that no matter how low you go in life, God is right there with you. You can't outrun or escape his presence. And this is where it starts to bring comfort to David, knowing that even though I'm trying to run from you, you're still there. You, you're the hound of heaven. You pursue me no matter what. And, and this causes David to start to internalize. He starts to meditate. He says, why, you know, why is God all-knowing? How does God know everything about me? Why does God always pursue me? Why doesn't God let me, let me go? And his answer is the omnipotence of God, the, the all power of God. Omnipotence is all powerful. It's almighty. Verse 13 starts with four, and four in scripture is a reasoning compound word. So, so when you see four in scripture starting off a verse, it's about to explain the reasoning for everything before it. So everything that we've just read so far, verses 1 through 12, David's explaining in this next part. The reason why you're omniscient and all present, um, omnipresent, is because of this. For you formed my inward parts. You have wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance." And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. David is saying, the reason why you're like this with me is because you were all powerful by even creating me. It's not the fact that God created David, it's the manner in which he did create him. It's the, the, the language that he used, excuse me, shows this very intimate process of God creating the individual. You have formed my inward parts. The word form, is, it's, it's used of a potter taking a lump of clay and forming that into a vessel. So 
It's the idea of me getting my hands dirty, sticking my hands in the clay and forming a plate or forming a bowl or a cup. Um, the, intimacy, the intimacy there is saying that God is hands-on. He didn't create David from afar. He was right there with him. He formed his unformed substance. You've seen it, but he took it and formed it. The, the, the next part of the psalm, the verse, it says, you wove me in my mother's womb. The word wove, some translations say knit, speaks of uh, somebody weaving a basket together. And these baskets sometimes have very intricate designs, right? You ever see um, like people who do yarn work? I don't know what the correct term is, but you know, they make uh, like tapestries out of yarn and stuff. How intricate these designs are. Where I look at that, I'm like, how could you even picture that? <laughs> and they take yarn and they weave it together and it's very hands-on. It's an intimate function. David is saying, you were hands-on when you created me and you did it very intricately. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your fingerprints are all over me. And it shows that God is all powerful enough not to sit back and speak things into existence. When you go back and look at Genesis and God is speaking everything into existence. But then when he gets to man, he doesn't speak. He forms man out of the dust. And then he fashions women, which is why women are more beautiful than men, because God takes dust, just throws that together for a man. But then he, he fashions a woman together, right? Um, it's this intimate level of God creating us. It's why we're the pinnacle of his creation, because we're made in his image. And there's this intimacy, not just in this part of the psalm, but when you look at the whole psalm, you see intimacy all throughout it. The first part, um, verse 3, he says, you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. David refers to God as Lord twice in the first part. That's Yahweh. That's God's relational name. He's saying in the midst of my struggling with who you are and me trying to break down the stereotype, it's in the context of my personal relationship with you in the first place, God. There's an intimate relationship. There's an intimacy of God knowing everything about me. There's an intimacy in God chasing me when I try to run from him. And there's an intimacy of God even forming me in my mother's womb. The whole psalm is birthed out of this intimate love that God has for us, who has for me and for you. And the reason I think why there, there's so much wrestling going on here, um, intimate relationships are always the most vulnerable for real hurt. It's why most of the hurt in our lives and everyone's lives are dealing with family relationships. The most intimate relationship should be within family context, a mother, a father, and children. Um, most people's hurts, most deep wounds are dealing with bad parenting, dealing with dysfunctional marriages, de dealing with wayward children. It's within family context. Why? Because whenever you're that vulnerable with somebody, you've opened yourself up. And if they mistreat you, then, then what do you do? You put up walls and you start protecting yourself from other intimate relationships because you don't want to be hurt that way again. There's a wrestling with here of trying to, trying to not stereotype God is because God is on an intimate level with us like no other. And part of us are saying, okay, God, if I open myself up to you, will you hurt me? Will you let me down? Are your plans for me even good? Um, when something goes wrong in my life, God, why'd you even let that happen? You know, I'm trying to worship you. I'm trying to love you. I'm trying to be obedient, but when something bad happens because I've opened myself up to you and because of how intimate we are, that's when I try to close myself off from God, where David's at, and then I try to run from God. 
there's this level of intimacy all throughout the psalm, which is why we wrestle with God when it comes to intimate things. Because we know what it's like to be hurt with close relationships. And so why do I want to draw near to God when he can just hurt me on a level that's going to be way more painful than anybody else? The beautiful thing is how David responds to that question in verse 17. He says, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God? How vast are the sum of them? He's saying, I know how intimate you are with me, but I also know your thoughts toward me are good. This is why uh, Romans 8.28, you know, God works everything together for the good of those who believe and are called according to his purposes. doesn't mean bad things will happen in my life. It means that God will use all those things and work them together for my good if I love the Lord. It's conditional. But what it's saying and what David's getting to another attribute of God that we all have to recognize is that God is good. And that's something that we have to wrestle with, too, because how can a good God allow all the evil to happen? It's one of those questions that a lot of unbelievers struggle with. If you say God is good, how can you look at all the evil? How can you look at wars and children being killed? How can you look at women being treated a certain way in different cultures and uh, uh, religions? How can you look at social injustice? How, How can you look at all the evil in the world and say that God is good? There's a lot of ways, and the point of that, I'm not going to try to answer that. There's a lot of ways we can answer that. The point is, as we wrestle with that, we need to come up to the same conclusion that David has. And, and we have to realize that, God, your thoughts toward me are good. They're precious. And it's more than that they're just good, they're comprehensive. Uh, he says, how vast is the sum of them? Meaning that all of God's thoughts toward me are good. They're, they're, they're all for me. And as we come to grips with that, I think that's where we start to understand um, that it's okay to wrestle with God as long as we come up with this conclusion. Now, what David goes into next is interesting to me because it builds context for this whole psalm. Starting at verse 19, he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. We don't know. So all the commentaries and everything we know about the psalm, we don't know exactly when David wrote it, um, which I I think is beautiful. I don't think we want to know because um, we get a glimpse into what David's going through as he's wrestling with this problem. When we struggle with God, typically... And when we wrestle with him, because a lot of times we, when we wrestle, it's, God, I expected you to do something for me or behave in a certain way. That's my stereotype. You didn't do it, and now I'm trying to come to grips with why you didn't do what I thought you should have done, right? That never happens in a vacuum. It happens in the context of circumstances. So David's circumstances right now is that there are men who hate God, and there are violent, evil men who hate David, and they're trying to kill him. And it's in the middle of that that David penned the psalm, and he's, he's struggling with God's omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. And he's saying, okay, God, if you are the God who you say you are, why are you allowing all these things to happen to me? Now, for us in this room, I'm sure no one's trying to kill us right now, but you replace this with what you're going through. The context of you wrestling with God is, God, how can you let my marriage end up right now where it's at? How, how can you let my kids drift that far? 
How, how can you let my business fail? I put my life savings in this, and now it's gone down the drain. How can you let my house be foreclosed? How can you let that family member die? And I was praying for them day in and day out. How can you? And all the problems and circumstances that we have, we form these questions that we ask God. And the root of those questions are, God, I expected you to behave in a certain way. You didn't. And now I'm trying to figure out why. And the reason why is because I've stereotyped you, God. I've put you in a box and you're God who is sovereign. You do. Scripture says God does what he pleases. The wrestling is I have to come to grips with the fact that God is not obligated to do what I want him to do. And a lot of times what we do is we put God in this box by saying, okay, God, if I'm a good person, if I go to church, if I pray, if I read my Bible, if I give to the poor, if I'm a friendly person, we build all these conditions and say, if I do all these things, God, you're obligated to respond to my prayers. You are obligated to bless me. You're obligated to do certain things for me. And when we start doing that, we treat God like a genie. So where we come, we rub the Bible, and then we ask our wishes. And God is saying, you got to get me out the box. I don't work that way. And the way that I work, I'm not going to fully understand. You're not going to fully understand because the Bible says his thoughts are not like our thoughts. His ways are not like our ways. So when we wrestle with God and we try to break down these stereotypes, we have to understand that, one, it happens within the context of our circumstances and our situations. But two, we have to come with grips with the reality that God may not respond the way we want, we want him to respond to our situation, to our circumstances, or to, excuse me, to whatever we're going through. The biggest question, when we come to that realization, so when we get to that point in our life and in our situation, the biggest question is how do we then respond? How do we respond when we wrestle with God? And, and everyone in the room knows what it's like to wrestle with God or to wrestle with a problem or a situation, that thing that just grips you at night and you losing sleep over it. You're losing peace over it. You're, you're trying to be at work, but you can't even think about your work because you're thinking about a problem. You're, you're trying to be at home or on vacation and relax, and you can't because you're anxious. You're always, it's that thing that you're just wrestling with. It's causing issues, you know, that, that gut-wrenching where it's deep down in your soul. The question is, what's our response when we get to that point where we realize that God may not address it the way I want him to address it? And that's where David ends the psalm, and I think that, that it's, it's a beautiful ending in verse 23 he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David comes back full circle. He begins with pretty much the same thing. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The biggest difference here is that when David begins, it's negative. Remember, he's saying you search me and know me, but then I'm going to build this case against you, God, about why I hate it because it's a confining knowledge, and you're pressing against me. Now that he's wrestled with God, he's coming up to the conclusion of he, now he's inviting God to search him. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my anxious thoughts, even though he's already declared, God, you know it all, now I'm giving you the invitation to search me. Really what the invitation is, is not just to search me, but then to show me where I'm wrong. That's where he says, see if there's any harmful way in me, and then lead me in the right way. Um, Augustine said it, and then John Calvin built on this, this idea called double knowledge in theology. It's this idea that my knowledge of God and my knowledge of myself is, is intricately linked together. 
Meaning if I want to know more about myself, I have to know more about God. If I want to know more about God, I have to truly know more about myself. Um, What he's saying is that as we start to understand God's attributes, who God really is, so we break away from our preconceived notions and the ideologies that we force on the God, when we break away from that and start to understand who God truly is, then that allows us to really see who we are in light of who he is. And if we, and, and I'm not talking about the surface stuff because everyone can kind of say who you are, but when you get into the, the deep down reality of who you are, like going back to your motives and your actions and the way you think and what motivates you, what drives you, what pushes you, what tempts you, what sin will really cause you to, 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 to fall, what sin do you really struggle with, that those the real self-knowledge, the more we know about God, the more we know about those things. And then the more we know about those things, the more we turn and relate to who God truly is. That's what David is saying at the end here in verse 23 and 24. He's saying, God, I'm going to open myself up to you so you can search me. You can know me. You can see all these things that are wrong with me, point them out to me. And that way you can lead me away from those things. At the end of David's wrestling, what he's really getting into is that, God, I want to be loyal, I want to be obedient, and I want to be submissive to you. There's only two responses to our wrestling with God. Um, The first response, and we see it all the time, is that when we wrestle with God, we're going through life, we have a situation, a problem, whatever, God doesn't respond the way we want him to respond or the way that we already think or say he should respond. The first response is that I'm going to turn my back on you, God. This is how most people end up as atheists. If you really drill down into an atheist, most atheists, not all, so you know, you don't want to stereotype them. Most had this preconceived notion of what God would do. God let them down. And so they say they no longer believe in him. And most of it is dealing with some type of real big pain or hurt. You know, I prayed, I know atheists because their mother died and they prayed and and they, but they knew God should do it. And when God didn't do it, oh, there's no God now. So I'm going to walk away. That's one response when we wrestle with God is that we walk away because we can't come to grips with who God, who God truly is versus who we say God should be. And when those two things don't add up, some people walk away from the faith or not from the faith holy. They walk away from obedience. They walk away from righteousness or even trying to live a life that's holy. The second response is what David does. He says, okay, God, I'm wrestling with you and there's some pain involved. There's some struggle. I might run away from a period in my life, But then when I come back, I'm going to come back with the idea of I'm going to submit to you and I'm going to be obedient to you and I'm going to be loyal to you. Why? Because I don't want to end up like the guys that I'm describing in verse 17 through 22. I don't want to end up like the men who are evil, who speak uh, evil of you and who are trying to hurt your people. And David gets to that to that spot. I think that's a, a I think that's a beautiful lesson for all of us. If. Is anyone a fan of wrestling in general? <laughs> wrestling? I'm, I'm, not, I'm a football guy, so I never got into wrestling. Um, I'll speak to this in just a second, now that you said that. Um, the whole purpose of wrestling is to throw, the definition of wrestle is to try to throw your opponent to the ground um, and try to force them into submission and declare victory over them. Okay, it's try to take your will and impose your will on somebody else. Um, to declare victory. Now, I'm not talking necessarily WWE 
because we know that's prescriptive. But like high school wrestling, Olympic wrestling, uh, the purpose is to try to get your opponent down to a place where they submit, where they, they tap the mat and they're out. Um, my suggestion from this whole psalm is that God brings us to a place to where he forces us to wrestle with him because he wants to bring us to a place of submission. It's, it's the whole point. Um, there's a few different things. One, we don't, typically we don't engage with God to wrestle. God brings the fight to us. And the reason for the shirt, um, it's a sermon I preached from Genesis uh, 32, 24 through 31 when Jacob wrestles with God at night. Um, Jacob doesn't go looking for the fight. God pops up in the middle of the night and, and brings the fight to, to Jacob. And he does that to force him to a place of submission where Jacob finally in his life starts walking for God. I think that when we wrestle in life with our circumstances, God will allow circumstances into our life because it forces us to wrestle with who he is. And when he forces us to wrestle with who he is, he wants to bring us to a place where we submit to him. It's not that, remember, God's thoughts towards us are good and precious. It's not that God's trying to be mean. He's, he's not the God with the magnifying glass, you know, burning ants, you know, the, the little depiction. That's not who he is. But he allows circumstances to pop up in our lives because he's constantly after our obedience. It's why Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Uh, now, God is full of grace, passion, uh, full of, I'm sorry, grace and mercy. And he pursues us, the hound of heaven. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God constantly and will always, all throughout the scripture, bring people to a place where we have to choose whether we will submit to who God is versus who we think he should be. That's the whole point of the psalm. That's the whole point of when we go through situations in life, you're going to have to ask yourself, I'm going to have to ask myself the question, okay, God, this is who I think you are. This is who I want you to be. This is how I want you to respond. But you're telling me you're going to do this. And when I'm, when I'm faced with these two, God is saying, not my will, but yours be done. The same way Jesus had to wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane with God. His own son wrestled with him. And Jesus said, okay, I want this cup to pass, but it's not my will, it's your will. So I'm going to obey in submission to you because of who you are. That's the psalm. That's what I wanted to share tonight, mainly because for me, this is the season I've been in for the last year and a half, is I've just been in this big wrestling match with God about the direction I thought my life was going to go in and how I thought I wanted my life to go in versus where God is bringing me. And where God is forcing me, sometime against, you know, my submission and my obedience. But um, it's a place where we wrestle with God. And I'm praying that I learn how to submit to him in the midst of my circumstances, in the midst of my problems, in the midst of my pains, in the midst of everything that's going wrong in my life. I'm trying to get to a place where I say, okay, God, it's your will and I need to submit to it and follow where you're taking me. And so what, how I want to close tonight is with this. Um, if you're wrestling with a situation and it's hurting, it's painful, I just want you to stand. Um, and I just want to pray for you and pray for, for all of us. Um, not that God takes the, see, a lot of times we pray that God just takes it away. That's, that's Paul, right? Take away the thorn, take away the thorn, take away the thorn. And God says, no. My prayer is that as we wrestle with God, we come to a place in our lives where we say, okay, God, I'm going to submit to you. And your grace is enough. And that's my prayer for us tonight. So let me, let me pray. Father, thank you so much um, for the example that David gave us, 
Lord, in Psalm 139, um, as we wrestle with who you are, Lord, and our understanding of who you are versus um, who we think you are and who we think you should be, Lord, I pray that you give us the grace to wrestle with you. Um, And Lord, I pray that you be patient enough to let us wrestle with you and come to the conclusion that you are um, Lord of Lord and King of Kings, Father, and you do as you please. Um, we're not always going to understand your ways. Sometimes you, you, you let us know, Father. Sometimes you don't. I pray that for all of us wrestling in this room, we come to a place where even if we don't understand what you're doing, even though sometimes what you're doing hurts, I pray that we can model what Jesus modeled in the garden where we say, okay, Lord, I know it's hurting. I know it's not the the path I would have chosen, Father, but it's not about my will. It's about your will be done. So, Lord, as I'm praying for myself and then the two individuals, Father, who stood, or for anybody else who's wrestling with the decision, Father, I pray that that's what our answer will be, that our wrestling with you won't cause us to run from you. It won't cause us... um, to, to give up on you, Father, but that it'll actually draw us near, Lord, that we'll be willing to take a chance to be disappointed by you because that's what faith is, Father, in a way. It's being willing to, to step out on faith and say, okay, God, this is what I want you to do, but even if you don't do it, you're still God, and I still will worship you, Father. Let that be our cry. Let that be our reality, Father, going forward as we address all these problems that we have in our lives, Father, but let us know in the midst of the problems, Lord, verse 17 says, your thoughts are precious toward me. And then the vast of them, Father, is good. Um, Even in our pain, even in our circumstances, even in our problems, you are good. You're good toward us. You're good, Father, in all that you do, even though we can't see it. So, Lord, I pray that that can become a reality for all of us who are wrestling with you, I pray that you can comfort us, Father, give us peace, and ultimately draw us close to you, Father. Draw us near um, so that we can worship you in spirit and truth, Father. We love you and we thank you, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.